who are we and who do we wish our desire to be? Is there a we? If not, can there ever be a we, a sense of community? In light of recent events in our nation's capital, should we conclude that what we witnessed is in reality who we are, a divided, angry, and violent people? Welcome to the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. We're glad to be back here with you again, all of the members of our our audience. And as always, Marcus and I like to take the time to thank you all for being in touch with us, communicating with us as we go through these shows. We didn't particularly uh, have in mind that we would be doing this particular show, but we're glad to be able to join each other back here again via Zoom because we're still out of the studio here amongst in in the middle of COVID. But I know that we're not the only ones who are having to continue to have these Zoom conversations with each other. But Marcus and I felt that given what happened recently on January 6th, to be exact, in the nation's capital, that it was an opportunity for us to come back together again and talk about some of the things that we, Marcus, really over the course of the years that we've been doing the show, we have been having these conversations. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, as as has been pointed out on previous shows, it seems that of, of late, at least over the past uh, two years or so, there have been events that have taken place in American society that I think um, in, in, in some ways have punctuated, right, or, or accented in very visible, undeniable ways uh, much of what we have been discussing um, on the show over the course of its life. And so we, we, and we certainly have never seen anything quite like what we saw on January 6th. So, 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 there's, so there's, there's, there's no way that we could um, allow uh, that event, the insurrection, to take place without without addressing it um, within the context of, of our conversations on the right. show. You know, Marcus, I have to take this moment to kind of let the audience know that you and I, in thinking about this particular show and coming together to have this conversation, really almost like the reflection show model that we've used before, mm-hmm. I was surprised as I went through what you, uh, I love the word that you use, you call our catalog of shows, and there are over 80 of those shows now. I was stunned at how often we have been in conversation about issues surrounding civility, politics, how we kind of interact. We had this conversation not too long ago with, uh, with Chris Cooper, who is a professor, uh, professor mm-hmm. of political science at Western Carolina University. Everyone here recognizes Chris's name. I've got to admit that conversation with Chris was very, it w- was just a lively and rich conversation, even though the two of you kind of took pot shots at me over the whole <laughs> issue of Alexis de Tocqueville. <laughs> but, well, 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 you know, I, I think the pot shots were well, were well deserved because both of you sort of were taking up a, a historical position against me. So, right, right. <laughs> but, you know, Marcus, it was a lively conversation about who we are. And, you know, and you and I and the audience should know we have been talking about this for a while that you and I should have uh, should have copyrighted these questions that we've been asking. <laughs> because I've been paying attention to what other commentators have been saying. And a lot of people are asking these same questions. Who are we? Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me as a historian, 
historian, I, I'm constantly thinking about our constitution itself, which begins with uh, with the word we, we the people, mm. you know, and who, so who are we in this country? And we have, we saw something of a breakdown in this, uh, in this collective sense of we, we've been seeing this you know, for so long, because there's so many people who are talking about it. I have referenced the work that I've done with the Z Smith Reynolds Foundation here in North Carolina around many of these questions about renewing the spirit of community. I've worked very closely with the Institute for Emerging Issues at North Carolina State University around the issue of community. When you think about community, we're thinking about the issue of we. But I really come back to the question that you asked when you and I were talking about these questions of who are we, who do we want to be, or who do we wish to be? You raised the question of if there is a we. And I think some people uh, probably were stepping back and scratching their heads and wondering just that when we witnessed what we saw on January 6th. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and I think at the heart of those questions that we that we posed on, on, on multiple occasions is really is really um, the issue of identity, of mm-hmm. American identity. Um, who are we as Americans? Uh, doesn't it doesn't even make sense to pose that question? Um, I would suggest that if there is any foundation, um, any political foundation, any historical foundation, any ideological foundation um, upon which uh, something that we might call an American identity might be built, might be erected, might be developed, that that foundation, I would argue, is is feeble at best, (laughs) is fragile at best, because um, if the foundation uh, were were strong or, or stable, I do not think that we would see the kind of fractiousness that we've seen really over the course of this of this country's entire history. I mean, so what happened on January sixth, uh, of course, was was particularly um, striking and somewhat unique when you consider the broader arc of America's political history. Um, but I, I wouldn't say that it was necessarily surprising, right? Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Given the fact that this that this question of, of of what what is American identity all about, is there even such a thing really as a sort of nationally shared sense of identity? Given that that issue has always haunted, I think has 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 persistently haunted American society since the country's inception. Right. Um, I think what we saw on January 6th really becomes much less surprising. Right. You know, Marcus, I'd like to take the time again, as we were doing just a few minutes ago, to 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 reference uh, two shows in particular that stood out to me. I mean, there's a number of the shows that would really stand out. I can't help recall, but recall the conversation with Chris Cooper, Dr. Chris Cooper, where we were talking about this after the election was over back in November of 2020. We also um, had a conversation with, um, with Dr. William Turner. And one of the things in that conversation was he was talking about his experiences as a civil rights activist. Um, Dr. Turner is now retired, but we we did that conversation in the context of what had happened in earlier in early 2020 with the death uh, of of George Floyd, which, interestingly enough. Time has passed, and I very few people you hear very few people talking about the whole issue with George Floyd. That's something for us to come back uh, to come back to again. But there was a moment in the conversation with uh, with Dr. Turner where you did raise the, the point to him. You know, so why does it take this? Why does it take an event like George Floyd's death so dramatic as it was that we witnessed? 
so violent as it was, we witnessed all of that on camera. You were asking the question, why does it take this to kind of galvanize the nation to say, okay, we need to do something about this? And do you recall his response to your question? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that's, I, if I recall correctly, that's, it is at that point that he shared the story about the mule, mm-hmm. the, 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 the recalcitrant mule who just refused to work, refused to move. And so um, I believe it was the farmer. The farmer decided, look, okay, the, the way that I, what I'm going to do to get this mule to wake up and 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 do something and work for me is to smack it across the head with <laughs> with a two by four. I think he said. Right, right. And right. so and so I think what we discussed um, on the show with uh, with Dr. Turney and, and Turner and then on a on a subsequent reflection show was that the George Floyd event of 2020, um, you know, was was in metaphorical terms a kind of you know two by four smacking the country across the head, saying, mm-hmm. look. Um, you need to deal with the fact that uh, that 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 your that this country's social history, as other scholars and historians have pointed out, has been largely defined by the creation um, and aggressive sort of protection and preservation of what amounts to a racial caste system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And so and, and, and I've, I've kind of been thinking about that conversation that we had with Dr. Turner and this whole question of, you know, why, why did it take this, um, you know, to galvanize or to mobilize um, a, a domestic movement um, and indeed an international movement? Mm-hmm. And, and I think uh, that part of the answer is that George, the, the fact that George Floyd's death, um, the fact that he could die in that way, the fact that that kind of, of, of public um, execution was even possible in this country, I think speaks to the fact um, and is a reminder of America's status as a modern day racial caste system, mm-hmm. right? So, mm-hmm. Because really only within a racial caste system can something like that happen. You're right. Right. right? Um, can can a brown man be essentially publicly lynched, um, you know, by a white man who who is doing so in plain view of the public, right? In many ways, this is what I think, you know, James Baldwin would agree in many ways. This is what it means for for brown bodies to exist within the context of the of, of, of America's racial caste right. system. And so, right. yeah, I, I think I think Dr. Turner's story about the mule continues to be relevant, um, um, even as we uh, uh, begin to reflect on what happened on January 6th. Well, and Marcus, I continue to hold out some hope that maybe future generations, those coming after us, will be able to take a much longer view. You and I have talked about mm-hmm. this idea of taking long views, that it won't take these dramatic moments to kind of galvanize people to really rethink what the first principles of the, the of the nation are. Um, what what moves us? What Why are we here? I've often asked students when I teach American history, especially from the beginning, are if I'm looking at the history of the American Civil War and Reconstruction, and given the violence that occurred during that period of time, the most people to be killed in any of the wars that the United States has participated in still, Civil War. barely violent war, that what really drove people to this place? Did America have a mission? Did did Lincoln as president, who we'll talk a little bit about uh, again in momentarily when we talk a little bit about leadership, did he believe that America had a founding mission? And if so, what was it? And I think that 
I hate that it takes these moments in American history to get us to at least consider and to think about those things. So it's something we can come back to. But thinking about those shows, the show with Dr. Turner, also think about a show that we did with the former chancellor of UNC Asheville, uh, Dr. Mary Grant, you know, just as she was leaving, um, uh, leaving to go back to Massachusetts. We did a, 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 a we had a conversation with her that was in 2017. And for those of you in the audience who who are interested in um, in going back and listening to those shows, the title of that show is called A Gateway to Understanding and Tolerance, <laughs> something that is very appropriate for the conversation that we're having right here. And that was in December 2017 when we did that show, and it was episode 31. But she talked a lot about, you know, she was making a case for why the humanities itself. You know, you and I both teach in the field of the humanities. We hear so much at the university level about STEM subjects, the sciences, technology, you know, mathematics, and how this is really moving the country. Uh, this is the, the innovative part of what makes us Americans, and that um, is advancing technology and all of that. But also, the humanities are extremely important. And you and I had a conversation with Mary Grant about that. And Marcus, I also think about the show that we did with the two students from Christ School, uh, Jacob Dowler and Wyatt Gilday, where they were talking about the initiative that they had started there at Christ School um, to, in, through their social justice club to try to facilitate civil conversations. And um, it, it's just interesting to go back and revisit those conversations and just to see how long you and I and our, our audience have been kind of engaged in this continued discussion around issues of civility and community. Yeah, and I think I think one of the reasons that these two issues um, of of tolerance and civility, and I, I and I don't really like the language of tolerance um, because I think it's it 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 carries a sort of um, it, it it carries a sense that well I'm not really interested in in engaging this person or that person or or accepting that person or this person or this reality so I'm just gonna learn how to tolerate it right I'm not gonna engage it uh, potentially learn from it and interact with it on a deeper level I'm just gonna tolerate it but um, so I think that one of the things that 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 um, that our society may want to do moving forward is to really call into question this this idea of tolerating difference of mm. tolerating the other um, and maybe adopt a different kind of vocabulary um, mm -hmm. a different language that really compels us to to engage right um, beyond uh, in a way that moves beyond um, simply tolerating something mm -hmm. um, because again this I think this idea of, of, of tolerance of tolerating um, suggest an unpleasant experience, right? Right, 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 right. You right. tolerate something that is unpleasant, <laughs> yeah. but you engage something that 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 you find um, uh, meaningful, mm -hmm. um, enriching, edifying, etc. Uh, but but yeah, but so tolerance and, and this and this whole question of of civility and you know and, and thinking about about those shows and just how um, how I think remarkable it is that that that. At, at a high school level, you know, these, these Christ school students are already thinking in serious ways about civility, what it means to be civically engaged. Um, you know, I, I was wondering what what is what is the trouble with civility? Why why is civic engagement so difficult? Because it clearly involves more than simply going out to vote, right? Right, right, during, right, during, right. during election seasons. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I, I think about, for example, um, 
points made about civility by, for example, the former Congressman Jim Leach, who talks about um, civility and civic engagement as, um, as naturally involving, for example, argumentation, mm-hmm. right? He, he makes the point that, that argumentation is a social good. But he goes on to make the point that um, that what is needed, and, and this is and, and, and this is the point that he was making about I think roughly eleven years ago or so. Uh, but he makes the point that that what is needed now, as far as civility and civic engagement um, are concerned, is a, a kind of raising of of our standards when it comes mm-hmm. to civility and civic engagement, so that we're bringing into our our endeavors around civic engagement more attention to what history, right? right? right. Um, more attention to philosophical perspectives um, that that challenge us, that compel us to engage different perspectives, right? Mm-hmm. So that we can have a a broader, deeper, more accurate sense of American reality. Mm-hmm. And so, I think civic engagement really is 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 labor. Right. It is. It is is a form of labor. And it is not. And and I think it is it is it it is it is absolutely mistaken to reduce the the issue of of, of civic engagement or the work of civic engagement to merely going um, to your 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 local voting station and casting your ballot. Right. Right, right. That 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 I think is is one component of civic engagement. Mm -hmm. But 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 this but. But this kind of of of, of responsibility uh, that that all democratic citizens um, bear uh, really involves uh, labor that is consistent across, I would argue, the span um, the span of the year, not just during election season. Mm-hmm. Right. Marcus, and I and I, I, w- I just want to say I deeply appreciate your cr- your critique of the word tolerance. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I, my preference is for the word understanding, mm-hmm. and that really calls for that deeper engagement that you're talking about. So once again, Marcus and I want to thank you all for joining us here on the Waters and Harvest Show. For those of you who may just be joining us now, uh, we are engaged in a conversation. Really, Marcus, I would say around uh, the issue of civic engagement engagement. You know, that's going to kind of be a theme, I believe, in this conversation. We started this show out with the questions that we have been asking in a series of shows that we've been doing most recently, those questions of who are we? Is there a we? Who do we want to be? You know, Marcus, I, I'm curious. This this may be a moment here, and, and we want to jump into uh, a couple of things that as we reflected on what transpired on January 6th with the violence that we saw at the nation's capital and what precipitated it. You and I, you know, we thought about, okay, what are some things that we can see from the things that we really, really need to talk about? One, we're already talking about here, this whole idea of a culture of political civility. I want to come back to that. Um, but I'm curious here for a minute, you know, if you and I can talk about it, I'm trying, I've been scratching my head a, a bit trying to remember and recall what was it that prompted these particular questions that we've been asking about who are we? And it may be, it, you know, maybe the answer lies in the conversations that we've been having with so many of our guests on the show about the issue of community. But, I, I, you know, I'm curious, do you recall what really prompted us to begin thinking about these framing questions? Yeah, I, I don't remember a, a specific conversation, um, topic or issue, but I I think that the questions really were 
they ended up um, emerging sort of organically uh, in response to the social tensions, the political tensions, the uh, ethno-racial tensions that were really just brought to the fore in a very salient way, right? Um, especially after the death of, of George Floyd, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and again, you know, when you when you confront the racial dimensions of George Floyd's uh, public lynching, you can't help but you're you're forced to confront the reality of race in America. Mm-hmm. And the moment you confront the reality of race in in uh, in America, you're also immediately confronted, I think, with the we question. Mm, right, right, right. So so if in fact America is a racial caste system, then what do the terms we the people mean? Mm-hmm. Right. Who are the is people? included in? Yeah. <laughs> who, right. who who are the people? Um, you know, were were people who look like George Floyd, who looked like George Floyd, ever considered within the category of the people? The people. Um, and if they were never included in that category, right? What does that mean with respect, or, or what might that imply about that language, right? Mm-hmm. Which is which is you know very much enshrined in the country's constitution, right. and so. Yeah, I, I probably would point point to that moment. Although, again, I, I, I'm there are very likely. I mean, we, we've covered so much terrain on the show. There, there are very likely um, earlier moments um, that we've discussed on the show um, that were leading to those questions. Right, and perhaps you and I uh, at the at in those earlier shows didn't necessarily realize it um, in the way that we did last year. Lady, right. Yeah. Those, yeah. those, and they are still key uh, framing questions as you and I both have agreed. Now, one thing I'd like to know, because Marcus, I don't know if you're like me, but um, after January 6th and the events that transpired at the, at the, at the nation's capital in Washington, DC uh, with the attack on the, uh, on Congress, uh, on, on the, the first branch of government, as as we know, if you, if we know our constitution, um, while our elected representatives were seeking to do their duty to the constitution um, and confirm, certify that the uh, the election of a new president and vice president of the United States, uh, the state legi- I mean, the, the the national legislative branch of government was attacked. Um, if you're like me, people are asking how. How did you respond to this event? I mean, as a historian, I'm always thinking about um, that question. People say there's certain moments in American history where you will always remember where you were when the event occurred. I think for my generation, for us, it may be 9-11. We'll never forget you know, what was going on and what you were doing when 9-11 occurred. You hear people from who go back to the 1960s, that baby boomer generation, they will talk about, you know, the assassination of John Kennedy, uh, Martin Luther King, or Bobby Kennedy in the 1960s. You know, one historian has described that decade as that, uh, as that horrible, you know, the, he's described 1968 as that uh, horrible year in the slum of a decade, you know, given all that had, had transpired that year. So people have been asking me, you know, what were your thoughts about what happened, you know, uh, on January 6th? Were you surprised by this? Um, I've, I've been hard to kind of hard pressed to really give solid answers to those things, but it, is, it has raised certain um, issues in my mind, as you and I have discussed, and we'll discuss a little bit here, one being, as we've been talking about already, this issue of the culture of political civility, you know, mm-hmm. and how uncivil we have become. But 
what about you, uh, brother? How have people asking you the same question? I mean, I've gotten emails from people asking, you know, for you know my our views on on what uh, what transpired on on January sixth. Yeah, I've, I've I've not received any direct questions uh, from anybody. No emails, no no text messages, no phone calls. Um, at least no direct questions. I think people have. Uh, I have had conversations with with colleagues, um, friends, relatives. Um, this sort of indirectly prompted me to think about the question that you're posing. Um, where was I? What, um, how did I respond to um, the attack on the U.S. Capitol? Um, and, and I guess the way that I respond, I, I would respond. Um, I guess I guess I would respond this way. Um, I, I just couldn't help being just flabbergasted by the degree to which um, the, the 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 this sort of terrorist assault on the U.S. Capitol uh, was more or less um, tolerated, right, <laughs> by by law enforcement who were present. Um, and as many drones have pointed out, um, I was I was really in my mind juxtaposing. Um, the fairly feeble display of force that we saw in response to this, to this uh, cap, to, to this, um, to this attack, on what some consider to be really the 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 symbolic center of American democracy, in my mind, I couldn't help to juxtapose that terrorist attack and the feeble sort of uh, display of of of, of force um, that responded to it, to the kinds of of. Uh, or to the display of force uh, with which Black Lives Matter protests were met, right in the in in in, in various cities. Um, and again, it just it for me it just really raised the question of wow. So so how do we account for this? Right? <laughs> how how do we account for this? How can we account for this uh, without again bringing up the issue of America's standing as perhaps the you know one of the oldest racial caste systems in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because because really, I think again, only 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 in a um, a so-called democracy, which is socially constructed as a racial caste system, can a group of largely white um, uh, terroristic insurrectionists be allowed to scale the side of the U.S. Capitol building, mm-hmm. break the windows of the U.S. Capitol building, right? Um, surround the U.S. Capitol building, right? Um, occupy um, the floors of, of the Congress, right? Break into the, the offices of, of, of congresspersons, right? Um, only in a, in a democratic racial caste system, right? A so-called democratic racial caste system would that kind of terrorism be um, be tolerated, right? right and right, so, right. And, and and again, I couldn't help. I could. I, I I was struck, you know, as the as the as the story sort of unfolded, by images of of, of one police officer taking a selfie of himself with one of the uh, terrorists, and and yeah, and while while now, you know, we we now know that um, according to some FBI officials, um, a hundred plus more arrests um, have are are likely to be made if they haven't been made already, and more arrests are likely to come. So it looks like some degree of justice uh, will be served um, subsequently. But but just the optics of 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 the the this relative permissiveness right with which that terrorist act was um, was met, uh, I, I just found really really remarkable, and I also found it to be. Um, uh, a stunning uh, and undeniable indictment, right, on 
on on the very idea of American democracy. Right. And and, and it really makes me I was also uh, thinking about the degree to which this this really historically momentous event um, is likely to have a long term a long term impact on the country's global political standing. Right. Right. Because as far as I'm concerned, no longer can um, can the United States keep up right this this sort of um, facade of being a paragon democracy hmm. right which the rest of the world should seek to emulate right I think those days are are now gone right are now gone yeah. so it really you know so it takes us back to, to the question okay in light of what has happened on January 6 what what kinds of claims to weeness can the country make at this point mm-hmm. that would be coherent that would be credible, right, in the eyes of, of, of other nations abroad, right? And so I, I think these are some things that, that we really have to confront. It is, Marcus, and in, in confronting them too, we, you know, I, I hear in your word, the use of the word confront, I also hear reflect, reflection, that we've got to take the time to stop and reflect. So one question that has come uh, to mind for me is the question of what do we do with this moment? Um, I've had some people asking the question, does this mean that the democratic experiment or the other democratic experiment has it fail? Is this what is this what this means? Um, I've often heard, you know, that people who inherit something often have uh, lack a deeper appreciation of, of what it has taken to actually develop what it is that they're that they're inheriting. So have we really lost sight of what it is that the founding generation and those who have come after them, those who have really worked hard to try to widen or expand um, democratic participation in this country. And there are a lot of people who've done that. You know, we people will talk about Martin Luther King. I like to go back to people like Ida B. Wells. Um, I like to, you know, looking at in the African-American community. I like to talk about people like uh, Frederick Douglass and W.E.B. Du Bois and so forth, who have made this effort and argued for the expansion of the democratic experiment and the inclusion of others into it. Um, do have we lost an appreciation for what it is that we have actually inherited as Americans? And if so, does this mean that we really need a deep history lesson? And I wonder, Marcus, do we need to have a deeper understanding of what it is that democracy was replacing when democracy was developing as an idea and a concept for how a people should be governed? Yeah, um, I, I think I think the short answer is um Yes, we do need uh, a, a very extensive uh, history lesson about uh, what what made the democratic experience um, in North America possible in the first place. Um, I think that task alone, though, um, you know, given our country's uh, lack of commitment to critically educating its citizenry, um, is a gargantuan task. Uh, mm-hmm. But but thinking about you know the civil rights movement, thinking about the Black freedom struggle. Um, you know, thinking about um, other liberation m- movements um, launched by persons of color uh, in this country, Black Lives Matter uh, movement included. I think we, we cannot get away, though, from the fact that 
the American democratic experience experiment has always been predicated upon the mythology of race. Mm -hmm. It has always been a thoroughly racialized experience from, from its inception. And so when we think about Martin Luther King Jr., when we think about uh, people like Ida B. Wells, um, other civil rights activists, it seems to me that, that what they were pursuing, I think you used the term uh, expansion, mm -hmm. and I, I think that is an appropriate term. Uh, what they were pursuing was um, sort of an expansion of of the scope of America's racial democracy, such that they could um, sort of move and have a dignified life within what would continue to be um, a raced democratic society, right? I think that is a fundamentally different question or a different project than interrogating, raising questions about challenging the very foundations, like the, the, the very um, ideological foundations of American democracy, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, um, I think as, 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 we're, as we are um, seeing yet again in this country are very much informed by um, racial attitudes, right? Mm -hmm. Very specific mm -hmm. attitudes about race. Maybe now is an opportunity to remember right the work of Ida B. Wells, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Stokely Carmichael, um, other Black freedom struggle activists, while also summoning the courage to to have deeper, more challenging conversations about the very ideological foundation right of the American democratic experiment, and to begin to to reflect, to use your term, mm -hmm. to reflect on the ways in which. Um, that ideological foundation has led, right, to, I think, what has probably amounted to a failure, right, uh, mm -hmm. a, a failure to, 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 to realize um, the ideals articulated by the, the country's so-called founders. So right. I, I think now, you know, is, is an opportunity to embark upon that, upon that serious, um, subversive, reflective work. Right. But, do, but does the broader social will to do that exist? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Does the political will to do that kind of work exist? I don't know. You know that I tend to be um, a cynic <laughs> when it comes to these matters. You tend to be uh, an optimist, and I think I think on this on the, on this issue, I probably will make a decision to remain in the cynics camp. <laughs> no. but, I, but I'm sure you will try to pull me into the optimist. Camp. No, in the unfortunate, in the unfortunate, what I want to remain optimistic here, Marcus. What is interesting, uh, you have. You, you may be having, an, uh, you know, I will say a bad influence on me here. if you're pulling me uh, on this particular issue over into that cynics corner. But I don't want to stay there. So and I'm hoping, you know, as our audience is considering this, too, that the people want to try to be, uh, you know, to move into that optimistic camp. But this is going to take the work that you're talking about. OK, so, you know, so I'm raising the question, what do we do with this particular moment? Mm -hmm. Now, you and I, as we reflected on this particular episode and we thought about coming together in the conversation just to, to, to discuss it in this reflection show, one of the things that also emerged in our mind was uh, about America and American memory. And America has this habit least this habit of really moving on, moving past these events. Okay, the event occurred, 
We know it occurred. Now we need to move on. And we're seeing a little bit of that language as, as we think about, you know, as if you're paying attention to any newscast or some commentators and what they're saying now, um, you know, the country has moved into an impeachment of, of the president um, and moving into a trial that will take place in the Senate once again on this. But some people are saying, no, we don't need to do this. To do this, you're going to further divide the country. Or we need it happen. Now we need to move on with the nation's business. But Marcus, I find that deeply troubling and problematic. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it bodes with, I think, uh, well with what the experience in this country has been, that we very, we there's not it's not often that we want to take the time to be reflective but i think that that is the only way that we can begin to move beyond these things into that optimistic camp looking for things better is if we take the time to seriously deal with these things so what of america's habit of moving on is that a real thing i mean again you know up to this point i have resisted for maybe a, a little bit over a good 30 minutes into this show of bringing up alexis de tocqueville but here i go again i'm bringing him back up again here and i can't help but i have to make an argument for democracy in america in his book i have now begun calling uh democracy in america published in 1835 um when you know shortly after uh alexis de tocqueville was in this country, coming here from France to study American democracy. Um, I was surprised, Marcus, when I went back and listened to the show with Jacob and Wyatt that we discussed in that um, in that show with Jacob and Wyatt, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, because they were two, you know, two students who were very uh, well versed in Alexis de Tocqueville and, and what he observed when he was here. But one of the things that he found problematic about our democracy was that we were a nation or we seemed to be a, a people who were ahistorical that we didn't think about history, we just moved on. But can we really learn anything from this? Can we have the hope and the prospect of getting better if we decide to just move on past this event? Um, I, I think the answer to that question quickly is no. But I think, but, but there is something, but, but there is something that um, emerges as I think troubling um, with respect to making a decision not to move on, making a decision to sort of to sort of sit in the moment, reflect upon the moment, think about how the present moment may be connected to what has gone before, and and I think that the troubling the troubling piece of that is that it messes it really messes with or it threatens to mess with the myth of American unity, mm -hmm. right? It it very much threatens to 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 mess with this myth of America being a paragon democracy, an exemplary democracy that the world should embrace and, and align itself with, right? Because the, the, the moment you begin to reflect seriously on the present moment, historically, the moment you begin to, to link the present moment as a major historical moment in the country to, to, to significant historical moments that have gone before, um, the moment you embark upon that, that critical reflective work, these two mythologies, right, the myth of American unity, the myth of America as an exemplary democracy, begin to uh, weaken a little bit, right, if not, if not crumble altogether. And that does what? Something that we discussed earlier. That then begins to mess with our sense of identity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. As as Americans, as 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 a democratic society. So given how it seems to me, given how invested um, America has been historically 
in both of these mythologies, right? The myth of American unity, the myth of America as an exemplary democracy, right? Give, given how, how, how invested the country has been in, in those two mythologies historically, it, it, it seems difficult to me to incentivize, right? To incentivize Americans to embark upon this, this kind of reflective work because it is gonna be, I think, um, somewhat traumatic. Traumatic, why? Because again, for centuries, we've been invested in these in these two mythologies, right? Right, right. This is the way that the country has packaged, marketed, and presented itself to the rest of the world, right? And what happens when you discover through reflection, right, that this very purposeful self-representation uh, is in fact a lie, right? It, it, it is. It, it, it has never really been the case. Mm. What happens when that is when that is exposed, right? Mm. And again. Back to my earlier point, I hope I hope that the country can summon can summon the will to embark upon this kind of reflective work. Um, but I, I I see little I see scant evidence, at least in this moment. I see scant I see scant evidence that this is possible. It's possible. So, Marcus, this brings you you raise a good point here, and it brings in my mind the issue of leadership. So if we had strong leadership and should could strong leadership our reflective our thoughtful leadership help to facilitate this larger conversation not only in our local communities but on a state level or even at the national level and let's think about leadership you know you mentioned in the earlier part of this conversation you mentioned the name of uh, Jim Leach uh, congressman Jim Leach served i think 15 terms in congress until he was appointed to lead the uh, national endowment for the humanities um, by President Obama in when 2008, I think he took he took that position. Interesting thing about Congressman Leach is that he was actually a Republican and was a Republican who decided to kind of break ranks and actually endorse Obama for the presidency. Now he's given interviews to talk about why he did that, and and he talked about American image and America's image nationally, I mean, across, uh, uh, not nationally, but uh, globally, and the ability to to really influence the hearts and minds of people around the globe that democratic forms of government are the type of governments that you, we really want to pursue, that it it broadens uh, the, the boundaries of freedom for the most people. Um, I can't help but remember here, and I, I won't get this exactly right, but I think here of a quote from, um, from Winston Churchill, where you know, he said, "Out of all forms of government, is uh, it's it's really it's the the only one, but it's not the best." You know, it it because it can be very chaotic, but it calls for, I think, Marcus, strong leadership. So, what of our leadership today? And even when we look at what happened on January sixth, what does that tell us about our leadership? And as a historian, I think also as we think about the whole question of leadership. What type of leadership should we as a people be wanting to see? What, what, what should we be um, actually, you know, working for in, in those that we elect to public office to actually lead us politically? I mean, we've used the term as well that politics is the art of the possible. We talked to Chris Cooper about that. I think a, a conversation that we can come back to that that is about trying to find that center path, you know, of, of negotiating across these differences to try to find common ground. You're hearing people talk about that now. But Marcus, as I was thinking about leadership, and we did discuss this, you know, before we 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 decided to uh, to do this show, we were talking about 
examples of leadership in America that I think that we could learn from. One, I mentioned George Washington, and I can't help but think of Washington's leadership, not only in leading the, the, the country to a victory over the world's most powerful army at the time, Great Britain, but also in his ability to really know when it was time for him to let go of leadership. Many who know American history will recall that in 1783, the Newburgh conspiracy, when uh, there was an effort by uh, members of the army, the army office officers to really kind of march on Philadelphia um, and confront Congress in, in a similar fashion as we saw transpire on January 6th. There are many parallels there, only that these people were, you know, we had some former army and uh, military members and people who are part of law enforcement who were involved in that. But Washington's leadership in 1783 in the Newburgh conspiracy was so impactful are so important to actually pulling back what could have been a, a major crisis and could have really broken this experiment of democracy with democracy and self-government from the get-go. So is there something that we can learn from looking back in history and looking at those type of examples of, of leadership? Yeah, I, I think so. And and to me, you know, I, from my perspective, perhaps the, the preeminent or, or a preeminent example of leadership um, is found in South Africa, right? I think I think about Nelson Mandela, um, and I'm I'm reminded of 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 an event that featured Mandela in 1990. So he had just been released from prison after, after having been in prison for 27 years, South Africa, um, and uh, he was he was being interviewed or. Uh, uh, by Ted Koppel, and, and, he, and he was also fielding questions from an audience assembled at the City College of New York um, in Harlem. And uh, am among the many, I think, uh, points that Mandela made that really reflected the kind of leader that he was, um, and I think reflected um, uh, something of, of what we can learn from, from him as a leader, um, was statements like, for example, um, he once uh, stated, during this during this this sort of town hall event with Ted Koppel that uh, that a man who changes his principles according to whom to who he's dealing with is not fit to lead a nation. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that that point to me uh, was very important because sort of going beyond an emphasis on the importance of being principled as a leader, of being a, a, a leader who is principled um, and visionary. Um, it really speaks to um, being principled in a convicted way, right? So, so you're principled in a way that um, is, 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 is grounded, is grounded in something that does not shift, that does not alter depending upon um, who you're engaging with, depending upon uh, what political setting that you're in. And um, as I'm sure our, our audience knows, uh, Mandela's political vision, uh, the vision that grounded him so much, um, was a vision of South Africa as a unified, mm -hmm. equal African state. Right. I mean, he, he talked about this repeatedly um, as a leader of the African National Congress. Um, it came out in his critiques of President de Klerk, uh, who was the last sort of Afrikaner uh, president um, to, to, to rule uh, in South Africa. 
Uh, and, and another, I think, uh, uh, sort of moment during that during that town hall that really exemplifies Mandela's uh, uniqueness as a leader uh, had to do with, or was in response to criticisms that were um, leveled against him from audience members um, about his perspective on uh, PLO Chairman Yasser Arafat, mm -hmm. um, Colonel Gaddafi in Libya, and Fidel Castro. And Mandela's response basically was, <laughs> was look, uh, these, three, these three leaders um, have not only demonstrated a commitment to, to our struggle, as a South African people, but they have also devoted resources, right, to us to assist in 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 our struggle. And he went on to say that, you know, from the perspective of the African National Congress, um, from his perspective as a South African leader, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, the, the the enemies that the United States um, has named as enemies of the U.S. need not be enemies of South Africa, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? right? Especially, especially if the persons that you all want us to consider enemies um, are are actively involved in promoting our liberation struggle, mm -hmm. and that I think is is exemplary of the kind of convicted, principled, visionary courage, mm -hmm. right? That that is really um, uh, reflective of strong leadership. And I, I would argue of the kind of leadership that this country needs in this moment. Mm, so right. for me, so for me, you know, a preeminent international example of, of political leadership would be Nelson Mandela. Mandela, and I'm glad you bring that up. I can't help but, you know, Marcus, I, I argued uh, because my critique of, of Mandela is the same as yours, that this was an exemplary uh, example of what real leadership could look like. And I believe it's almost like it's once in a lifetime that we get to see this model. Mm -hmm. um, two things that I find so, so strikingly similar between he in Washington is that these were two people who freely gave up power. Two, uh, Washington, after two terms as president of the United States, decides he he kind of sets this uh, this model. The only person to kind of break that model, and in the context of the Second World War, was Franklin Roosevelt. But he set the model of two terms that the president serves two terms and then goes away. He freely gave up power, just as he had freely given up his commission uh, as the commander of the of the Continental army at the end of the American Revolution, most people were stunned that he actually gave up his his commission and then that he actually freely gave up the presidency after completing two terms and it said that uh george king george the third actually saw this moment in american history which set forth this peaceful transfer of power that we now talk about and that george the third actually called him called uh washington you know washington with all his flaws just as as mandela would argue in interviews that he gave that he was a human being who was flawed as well, mm -hmm. but these were people who recognized their flaws, and we can understand that. But at the same time, you know, King George refers to Washington's giving up a power, saying that he was the greatest character of his age, because up until that time, that was not something that had been done. And so we set, we set the nation on a course that um, we would hope that this would be meaningful to those who are in power today. Mm -hmm. It's interesting here, Marcus, I, I always like to quote people 
just quoted George III, I can't help but think of Henry Adams, the great historian Henry Adams, who was a member of, uh, I think may have been the grandson or the great grandson of uh, President John Adams. Um, Henry Adams, as a historian, once argued in the 1870s when he looked at the political leadership of the country at that time, especially under Ulysses S. Grant, he made the statement that the that if there was any evidence that could disprove Darwin's theory of evolution, it was to look at the political leadership of the United States from Washington to Grant. It hadn't gotten better. And so when we look at where we are today, what would be Henry Adams' critique of America's political leadership today? So I think that something for you and I, as we've been talking about this, and I know that you and I would invite the members of our audience to be thinking about too, is the need for leadership and what should leadership in a democracy look like? What should our political leadership look like as we move forward? We have got to take the time to really think about and reflect on that particular issue. Don't you yeah, think? And, and I would and I would say that, you know, I, I think it would be helpful for uh, political leadership in this country moving forward to exemplify what um, the poet Walt Whitman would describe as um, athletic democratic practice, right? Which means that, uh, which means a form of democratic leadership that is not averse to vigorous debate, that is committed to going back to our earlier point um, over the course uh, uh, in this conversation, um, a commitment to um, civil discourse, right? Civic engagement that takes history seriously, mm-hmm. that takes philosophical reflection seriously. Um, that is interested in, in again, in vigorous debate, um, right, in service to the construction of, 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 of a more um, democratic, unified, as much as, as much as you know, this is possible, uh, unified, less fractious society, right? Mm-hmm. But again, um, that that kind of athletic democratic leadership, again, you know, invoking the language of Walt Whitman, um, you know, I, I, I don't know that that kind of leadership comes along often. No, right, right. I think Mandela exemplified it, mm-hmm. right? I mean, when, when, when you look at that, that town hall meeting that, that again, that, that, um, that he, uh, that featured him uh, in 1990, I mean, I think we see, I think we saw um, an athletic democratic leader in action. Mm-hmm. Right. He was engaging his critics right there in Harlem, New York. Right. Uh, he was engaging Ted Koppel, you know, a very prominent journalist who had some very, you know, had had some very um, sort of biting questions for mm-hmm. Mandela to field. Um, but but what was so evident to me um, in, in watching the footage of that was just how composed, how poised and how potent Mandela's presence was as a Democratic leader. Um, and, and how potent and, and just sort of effective his, the way in which he engaged this diverse audience was. And in my opinion, you know, the best political leaders have that quality. They have that quality. And, you know, I, I just don't know that we have, I hope that we will see another leader in our lifetime who is sort of cut of Mandela's cloth. Um, but, 
you know, the cynic is the cynic in me says, well, that that probably won't happen. But right. <laughs> but but I'm hoping that you you, you can convince me that hey, right. this is at least a possibility. <laughs> well, the optimist in me, the optimist in me, Marcus is going to say, look, the, the, our field as educators is where right. there's some right. real possibility if mm-hmm. we if we begin to focus on this now. So we've had these conversations about leadership and leadership development. Um, I think we had two. I know we had two conversations, two shows that we did with. Ed Manning here with Leadership Asheville, and he brought up this model of collaborative leadership. You know, the competitive spirit in America, I think, is something, you know, is something that can be good, but it can also be something that can go awry at times. And we need to find a way to temper that. Again, I go back to the conversation uh, earlier, our earlier uh point that you made earlier when you brought up Jim Leach. Um, And we would encourage you all in the audience to go and just Google Jim Leach's name, you know, and you'll find a conversation that he had uh, back in 2010 when he he instituted in that year what he called the the civility tour. Um, And he went around the country having conversations about how can we begin to bridge our political divide. it, based on what we saw on January 6th, it, I, I'm wondering if we were to talk to Congressman Leach right now, he might say, well, the, the tour was an absolute failure because clearly the divide has gotten wider. Mm-hmm. And we as Americans, if we want our country to to work and we want it to, to work for all people, the opportunity for all to participate actively in the democratic experience in this country, then I believe that we, we've got to re-engage those particular conversations. We've got to ask ourselves, why has this divide in this country widened the way that, the way that we witnessed it widen, widening on, um, on January 6th? And Marcus, he brings up in his conversations that he did how, in many ways, sports, sports has a higher ethic than politics does because they're agreed, there are agreed upon rules have we lost any agreement about the rules of democracy, of how our political democracy actually operates on a daily basis? That's a question I think for all of us to really think about. And we'd love to hear from you all in the audience about your thoughts about that. What are the rules? Have we lost um, any uh, sense of what those rules are? Do we need to re-engage that particular conversation about what will be the guidepost of how we operate together in this, this, uh, this place that we call the United States of America. Yeah, and quickly, you know, I, I think I think one one aspect of that that sports ethic is is respect for one's opponent, mm-hmm. right? And in the context of politics, you know, have we lost respect for our political opponents? Right. And if if we have, Marcus, we have to ask ourselves why. You know, mm-hmm. these are deeper questions, deeper questions that we have to get into. I, you and I often talk, uh, we talk quite often about people like James Baldwin. I think that James Baldwin speaks to these issues mm-hmm. of what mood, Alexis de Tocqueville speaks to. There's many people who have been writing about this and speak. Uh, Arthur Schlesinger in his uh, book that was published back in the late 1940s, which I think is wor- worth a read again today, called The Vital Center, The Politics of Freedom, where he talks about really giving voice to that, to the moderates in, in our society rather than the extremes, but we've gone off to the extremes. In fact, Com- uh, Congressman Leach in his assessment of American politics in 2010 said that 
there are two major flaws, or two major weakness in America, weaknesses in American politics. Number one, he said, is that there's too much money. And the other is that the extremes in each one of the parties on the right and the left seem to be the only people are being heard. But what about those people in the middle? How can we give voice to that, that middle where governance actually takes place? So I think that's a question for us to bring up. So we'd like for you all to be thinking about that. And before we end this particular show, we would like to uh, to to let you know about a live event that we will be doing on February 11th on Blue Ridge Public Radio's YouTube channel. Uh, the topic will be civic engagement, which you've heard Marcus talk so eloquently about today, but we would really love to have your participation in that conversation about civic engagement. And we ask you, what is civic engagement and why is it important? Email us your answers or better yet, send us a voice memo to news at bpr.org. And we may include it in the live event which will take place Thursday, February 11th at 7 p.m. on Blue Ridge Public Radio's YouTube channel. All right. And again, Marcus and I want to thank you all for joining us for this show, which essentially was kind of a special show just to discuss events that are transpiring politically in our country now. We hope that you have found this conversation engaging and we'll look forward to talking to you again in the next show. Take care.